currently working our way through the book of Acts. So uh, we began this journey a few months ago. We are in chapter 8, so we're roughly a quarter of the way through this book of the Bible already. We've been given a front row seat to to some of the most incredible moments in redemptive history, really, when you think about it. We've seen the resurrected Jesus walking the earth back in chapter one. We've seen Jesus's ascension to the Father's right hand. We've seen an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, unlike anything the world had seen up to that point in history. We've seen some of the greatest sermons ever preached. We've seen the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons. We've seen the conversion of thousands upon thousands of souls. We've seen some of the earliest expressions of the New Testament church in action. In addition, we've seen a number of of threats to the church's growth and advancement of the gospel overcome by God's grace. We've seen the threat of persecution from the outside overcome as the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit stand up to the religious leaders on a number of occasions. We've seen the threat of hypocrisy from the inside overcome as evidenced in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We've seen the threats of division and distraction overcome as the church adapts to new ministry needs with infrastructure and the appointing of leaders. We've seen martyrdom overcome as the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem in the wake of Stephen's stoning. We've seen the power of uh, self-exalting sorcerers overcome as the spirit flexes and shows Simon the magician's powers to be less than impressive. We've seen the gospel rescue the most hard-hearted, religiously lost Jewish priests, and we've seen the gospel rescue irreligiously lost Samaritans caught up in black magic. We've seen all of that, and we're only eight chapters in. Luke has gone to great lengths to show us that absolutely nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. Nothing. There's no threat to the church, no obstacle to growth that the Spirit cannot overcome. This morning, we begin to to get a foreshadowed glimpse of the gospel making its way to the end of the earth as Jesus had promised back in chapter one, verse eight, as Philip shares the gospel in a one-on-one conversation with an unlikely traveler on a desolate dirt road. If you're from the country, you're gonna love this one, all right? If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter eight. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll start off in verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and utilize it this morning. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that with you as you leave this place. I'll go ahead and pray for us as you're opening up to this morning's passage, and then we'll get to work. God, I pray that you would help us to see two things that are incredibly beautiful in this morning's passage. One, that Jesus is the hero of everything. Many of us theologically know that to be true. Do you help our hearts to grab hold of that beautiful truth in a new way this morning? And I pray that you would help us to see the significance of the third person of the Godhead in the ministry of glorifying Jesus Christ. And that uh, not only would we have a, a theological understanding of the, the Spirit's significance, but I pray that we would functionally grab hold of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, would you move this morning? As I've said in this series over and over again, you're the same Spirit at work in the book of Acts, and you work today. Help us to believe that. Help us to to pray for your presence and power more in our lives, in the ministries that you've given us. Give us eyes to see where you're calling us. Give us ears to hear your voice prompting and leading us. And I pray that as we move toward those that you're calling us to minister to, that we would not take to them a hollow, empty message, but rather, like we'll see in this morning's passage, that we would take them to the good news of Jesus. 
Spirit of God, move mightily as we spend time in the inspired, inerrant, beautiful, authoritative scriptures. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, one of the great turning points in in the book of Acts, at least up to this point, is is the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7, going back a couple of weeks ago. The first post-resurrection Christian martyr murdered right outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's in the wake of Stephen's martyrdom that the church is no longer able to meet in a concentrated area. They're forced to, to scatter into smaller gatherings, which actually ends up being a catalyst for the advancement of the gospel as refugee Christians begin to take the gospel to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. Picking up where we left off last week, Philip is one of those refugee Christians who's been changed by the gospel forever, such that he, he goes down to Samaria and shares the good news of Jesus with those considered to be the absolute refuse of Jewish society, not viewing himself as superior to the Samaritans, not regarding them as beyond the reach of God's grace, understanding that absolutely everyone is hopeless apart from the gospel, which means that no one is more hopeless than anyone else. As a result of his message and ministry. We're told that a city that had for so long marveled at black magic is filled with joy as they marvel at Jesus, that there's much joy in the city. Picking up the story in verse 26, we're told, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this to be a little strange. Put yourself in Philip's shoes for a second. All right, you've, you've just shared the gospel in a heavily populated Samaritan city center, and the response is one such that there's much joy in the city. We're talking about a significant number of people having believed in Jesus, now the infant core group of a brand new church plan, many of whom had been caught up in this movement associated with Simon's sorcery, which begs the question, is this, is this really a good time to leave the city? I mean, what about the discipleship of all these new followers of Jesus? What about the establishment of a ministry infrastructure with respect to this Samaritan church plant that's just been birthed? And yet we're told in verse 27, very simply, and he rose and went. That Philip leaves the joy of revival in Samaria to head out to some desolate dirt road in the middle of nowhere, believing that though he can't see all the pieces of the puzzle, God has a plan and is worthy of our trust. Reminds me of Jesus himself as he's led by the Spirit following his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In Matthew's gospel, we read about that, his own desolate dirt road experience, that, that though he couldn't see all the pieces of the puzzle at the time, Jesus' experience in the wilderness was actually preparing him for Calvary, where he would ultimately face temptation and suffering in the greatest form. It was, it was also preparing him for his present ministry at the right hand of the Father, as one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, with your weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as you and I are, yet without sin, that like Jesus, we're told, Philip believes that it's better to trust God in the desert, even when you can't make sense of how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Story goes on, verse 27, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. That Philip shows up, sees a man sitting in a chariot, reading a copy of the scriptures. 
Here's what we know about this stranger that, that uh, Philip encounters on this spirit-led journey. We know that this man is identified as an Ethiopian first, which either means that he's, he's one of the many Jews that have been scattered in the wake of the exile, like the crowd we saw back at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or he's a God-fearing Gentile who worships the Jewish God, which would explain why he's traveling to Jerusalem to the temple and why he has a copy of the Old Testament on hand. Second thing we know about this man is that he's, he's a eunuch. He's been emasculated somewhere along the way, likely to, to ensure loyalty, maybe even minimize sexual misconduct, which uh, the third descriptor helps to explain that he's not just any Ethiopian eunuch. He's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's the treasurer to the queen. That his having been emasculated is something that was common to male servants, particularly in royal households, to keep them in check, to keep them from enjoying the spoils of the harem, you might say. But it, it wasn't without some sort of benefit because we're talking about a world in which most people traveled on foot, even the most prosperous people by donkey in that day. This guy's traveling in a chariot that's big enough for himself, a driver, and eventually, as we'll see, Philip to jump on board. Not only that, he speaks well-educated Greek, meaning that he's, he's reaped the benefits of some sort of advanced education. Now, this is the interesting thing, at least to me. You might not find it interesting. You might think this is nerdy, but in the book of Acts, you... you you see the story of the gospel moving out geographically speaking, right? You see the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. There are a lot of geographical descriptors in the book of Acts because that's the story that the book of Acts is telling. But notice that the descriptor of this man that Luke puts on repeat is not that he's Ethiopian. It's that he's a eunuch. That though he's introduced as an Ethiopian and a eunuch and a treasurer to the queen, he's referred to on four other occasions in this passage, not as an Ethiopian, not as a treasurer to the queen, but as a eunuch. Why? Other than to humiliate this man forever as his story is embedded in the scriptures, which will live on through eternity. Like, what is Luke doing? Repetition is a literary device. He's up to something here. What is it about the fact that this man is a eunuch that actually helps to move this story forward? Well, according to the scandalous language, it's so scandalous that I, I'm, I'm hesitant to even read it. So you can go to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 for yourself and check it out. Eunuchs, we're told, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, were not legally allowed to enter the temple. They couldn't enter in. This man, we're told, has just traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. That's roughly a 1,500-mile journey one way. I don't know if you've gone to a Christian conference and, and driven there rather than taking a, a flight, um, but imagine for yourself the distance between Atlanta and Denver or Atlanta and Mexico City. That's the distance that this guy has traveled to worship at the Jerusalem temple and not by way of a 21st century Escalade, but rather a first century chariot. It took him a while. This man has traveled a really long way over the course of a really long time and he's likely coming off the heels of a subpar worship experience. One that left him feeling like an outcast as he had to stand on the outside of the temple precincts and look in on the worship that's happening. We're told in verse 29... And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Philip's starting probably at this point to put the pieces together. He didn't know when the angel of the Lord told him to head south that he was going to encounter a man sitting with a Bible in his hand. He just knew that he was supposed to head south. 
The Lord's leading him one step at a time, not six steps at a time, which would be far more comfortable, right, if God worked that way. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? Like, that, that would be nice. Like, God, if you'll just tell me the next half a dozen steps in the plan you have for my life, I'll happily and obediently trust you. It's not how God oftentimes works, is it? Which I'm becoming more and more increasingly convinced that that's God's kindness to us, that it causes us to depend on him, to lean into him as we acknowledge our deep need for him, and it grows us in intimacy with him as we find ourselves more on our knees in prayer, abiding in him, in relationship with him that Philip has no idea how this conversation is going to go. He just knows, per the Spirit's guiding voice, that he has a divine appointment with a man riding in a chariot down a desolate dirt road. Verse 30 goes on to tell us, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? Which is fascinating to me, on the one hand, because he doesn't start with a rehearsed speech. He doesn't immediately run to the Romans road presentation, though at times that makes sense to do, right? But rather, in this case, he sees sensibility in starting with a question. He wants to unearth this man's story, show him that he cares, maybe. Could have easily jumped right into declarative statements. At times, again, that may be what God calls us to do right out of the gate. But in this case, Philip senses the Spirit prompting him to unearth more of this man's story. Is he biblically literate? Is there a reason he's reading from the prophet Isaiah? Did he open his Bible with his eyes closed and just kind of do one of these because he was so desperate? Is there purpose behind this? And so he asked, do you, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Probably discouraged by his recent experience having been pushed to the margins of temple worship, if nothing else, reminded that he's on the outside looking into something that's more inside than he is, and now struggling to make heads or tail of the passage of Scripture that he happens to be in. Just what passage might that be, you might ask? Only one of the most readily connectable passages to Jesus in all the Old Testament. How cool is that? Verse 32 tells us, Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, verse 34, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or, or about someone else? As Philip encounters this guy, he's providentially reading one of the most Christ-foreshadowing passages in all of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, one of the, the four songs of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah, which ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This man is reading about one who experienced humiliation, just having experienced the humiliation of having to stand on the outside of the temple precincts and look in on the worshipers of God. He's reading about one led like a sheep to the slaughter, which would have certainly captured the attention of a eunuch, right? I mean, you talk about a divine appointment. It's incredible how God prepares this man's heart and calls Philip to meet him where he is. Kent Hughes, in, in his commentary, he says, God's sovereign work plus man's obedience brings the touch of God to needy human lives. Put another way, there are all kinds of quote-unquote chance meetings ready to take place in a life that is sensitive and obedient to God's leading. Again, probably made very little sense for Philip to leave Samaria, right? Bunch of new converts, like we had to get some ministry infrastructure, a discipleship class at least, something on the ground here, some sort of ground game. 
would have made perfect sense for Philip to stick around, appoint elders, establish ministry infrastructure, and yet God calls him away from Samaria to some desolate dirt road. Which tells us that following God requires faith because we only have a fragment of the story of what God's up to at any given time. But he knows how all the pieces come together. That's encouraging, right? That we don't have to know every fragment of the story. That we're simply called to follow the Spirit's leading. Martin Lloyd-Jones, by far not a hyper-charismatic man in church history, once said this, if you read the history of the saints, God's people throughout the centuries, and especially the history of revivals, you will find that it is something which is perfectly clear and definite. Men have been told by the Holy Spirit to do something. They knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and it transpired that it obviously was his leading. It seems clear to me, he says, that if we deny such a possibility, we are again guilty of quenching the Spirit. And so I'll stop here and just ask a few questions. Is there a neighbor that the Spirit has put on your heart to get to know? Is there a coworker that the Spirit is prompting you personally to engage in a conversation with? Maybe a, a parent in your kid's class or on your kid's sports team or a part of your kid's you know, extracurriculars? Because the reality is that, that just might be your chariot. And so one of my prayers for us is that we're not a Spirit-quenching church, that we, that we listen, that, that we have ears that are sensitive to hear the Spirit's guiding voice and that we move in the direction that that he leads us in because here's what happens when you listen to the spirit verse 35 then philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture he told him the good news of jesus he goes on to do exactly what jesus did on the road to emmaus with the two disciples in luke 24 showing this man that jesus is the hero of the bible from start to finish a man who's marginalized worship experience in Jerusalem was a public declaration of his uncleanness, unfit for the presence of God, feeling humiliated, despised, rejected, you name it. And here he's reading of Jesus who was humiliated, despised, and rejected. The spotless lamb of God led to the slaughter, taking the sins of unclean people, unfit for the presence of God upon himself at Calvary. You can just imagine him thinking, like, could could it be true for me too? Like, Could it be true that a eunuch, even a Gentile eunuch, could be declared clean? Like no longer humiliated, no longer despised, no longer rejected, no longer marginalized at the outskirts of worship, but rather having true accessibility to the living God? Listen to what Isaiah goes on to say in another part of his writing. Isaiah chapter 56, just a few chapters later. He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, that's specific, right? To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That that God promises that eunuchs will have a name better than sons and daughters, not a dry tree cut off from the Lord, but rather grafted in as part of God's people. You You can just hear Philip making sense of all this with this man, helping him to see his inability to keep God's Sabbath, to use the language of Isaiah 56, his inability to choose things that please God, his inability to hold fast God's covenant, and then running as fast as he can to the good news of Jesus. 
Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 6, telling him, the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquities of us all. And you could just hear the eunuch saying, like, you mean, like, even me? Like, even someone like me? And Philip's glorious reply, even you, brother. Even someone like you. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the slain, spotless Lamb of God alone heart must have been leaping out of his chest. Both of them, right? The evangelist and the recipient. Verse 36 tells us, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Sees the beauty of the gospel of grace, declaring that even he could be a part of this story of redemption absolutely giddy to take his first step of obedience through baptism. He doesn't need an announcement from the stage during a worship service like, let's do this thing now. As a declaration of praise to God for his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. I've had a couple of experiences like this in my life. When we lived in Orlando, we had a a few people make professions of faith. We had no baptismal. And so it's like, what are we going to do? I guess we're going to go to the YMCA and jump in their lap pool and baptize some people. And that's what happened. As people irreverently swam laps the whole time we were doing it. (laughs) Another instance, YMCA was closed. Let's blow up a kiddie pool. We got to get this thing done. And we had some baptisms and we celebrated the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You have something very similar happening here in Acts chapter 8. It's an incredibly moving scene if you'll allow yourself to enter into it and feel it and experience it particularly being that we haven't seen many personal stories of salvation up to this point in the book of Acts. We've seen a a lot of stories of mass conversion in the midst of public preaching, right? But here, it's a man on a desolate dirt road right in the crosshairs of God's grace and mercy. Really cool. Verse 39, as the story concludes, we're told, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Some, some believe that Philip disappeared out of sight in some non-miraculous way. Others believe he was taken up by the seat of his pants like the lifted Lorax. We're not really sure. Christianity apparently can can cut down on your commute time among all the other problems it solves, (laughs) which is really good for people who live in Atlanta, right? We We don't really know exactly what happened, but we do know that the gospel continues to show itself to be the power of God for salvation, to use Paul's language of Romans 1, that that this book of the Bible is filled with story after story after story of of people in diverse contexts receiving the good news of Jesus, such that just up to this point, we're only in chapter 8, we've seen religious people saved, we've seen irreligious crowds rescued, we've seen Hebrews, Samaritans, Asians, Egyptians, Ethiopians, some responding to public sermons in the market square, others to one-on-one evangelism in desolate places. We've seen rich and poor rescued by the gospel. We've seen educated and uneducated. We've seen now royalty and peasants. We've seen men and women, young and old. God is no respecter of persons, amen. If he were, salvation would be up to us. It would be of works and pedigree. That God is, according to the book of Acts, he's happy to flex the muscles of his grace and mercy in the rescue of all kinds of people. We're told that 
that the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing, a man changed by the gospel, taking the gospel to Africa. We, we can't say for sure whether he had direct influence or not, but out, out of Africa would come some of the most impactful early church fathers, men like Tertullian and Athanasius and Augustine. Kind of crazy when you think about it. In this morning's passage, you're, we're beginning to see the gospel go to the end of the earth. The good news of Jesus continuing to spread throughout the known world. And it really is incredible. When you, when you think about how true it is that everything points to Jesus, not just Isaiah 53. In, in the case of Philip and his conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch, yes, it's the Old Testament. Um, as he takes Isaiah 53 and shows this man how it points to the good news of Jesus, which is just one of many Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus, right? You got Genesis 3.15 declaring that the offspring of Eve would come and heroically crush the serpent Satan's head. You've got Isaiah 7.14 declaring that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. You've got Micah 5.2, which declares that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. There's Zechariah 9.9, which declares that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. There's Zechariah 11, which declares that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. There are famous Psalms like Psalm 22, declaring that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet several hundred years before crucifixion was even invented. When we open our Old Testament, we can with great anticipation, look for predictions of Jesus' coming to rescue his people, just like Philip here in Acts chapter 8. And it's not just through prophecies, right? There are so many Old Testament people, events, and, and institutions that foreshadow the person and work of Jesus. Some of you, we've talked about this before, that Jesus is the greater Adam, the last Adam, as Paul makes clear in Romans 5. 1 Corinthians 15, that unlike Adam who failed the test in his Garden of Eden and rebelled against God, Jesus passed his test in the Garden of Gethsemane and obeyed God perfectly all the way to the cross on our behalf. That Jesus is the greater Abel. Abel was slain by his brother Cain. His blood cries out for justice. Jesus was slain and his innocent blood cries out for mercy, making atonement for our sins. That Jesus is the greater Abraham. God called Abraham to, to leave his home and go to a place where he'd become the father of many nations. Jesus left his home and entered into the slums of human history to redeem the nations, which we see here in Acts chapter 8 with this man taking the gospel to Africa. Jesus is the greater Isaac. Isaac's one and only, Isaac was Abraham's one and only son who carried the wood on his back up the hill where he would be sacrificed. Yet God came through at the last moment providing a substitute so that Isaac might live. Jesus, the one and only son, not of Abraham, but of God, carried the wooden cross on his back up the hill of Golgotha where he would be sacrificed. Yet God didn't provide a substitute because Jesus is our substitute, bearing our sins, dying in our place so that we might bear his righteousness and live. That Jesus is the greater Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who sold him and betrayed him and uses his powers to rescue them. He's the greater Moses who functions as the mediator between uh, God and his people and establish a, establishes a covenant not with tablets of stone but with his blood. Jesus is the greater Job, the righteous sufferer whose friends abandoned him when he needed them, who was tormented by Satan so that God might be glorified. Jesus is the greater Boaz. Boaz redeemed Ruth, bringing unwanted foreigners into God's community. Jesus redeemed you and me, bringing wayward Gentile pagans into God's family forever. Jesus is the greater Esther. Esther risked losing the throne and ultimately her life. Jesus willingly gave up his throne and ultimately his life for you and me. He's the greater David. He's slain the giants of Satan's sin and death. 
the eternal king over God's people. He's the greater Hosea. Hosea married a prostitute who was unfaithful to him. Jesus likewise took a bride for himself, the church, and he's faithful even when we're not. Amen? He's the greater Jonah. Jonah remained in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus remained in the belly of the earth for three days before rising in victory over sin and death. He's the true Passover lamb as um, Philip sought to show the Ethiopian eunuch, innocent without blemish or spots, stain, uh, slain so that the angel of death might pass over us. Jesus is the true prophet. The Old Testament prophets, you see him all the time saying, thus says the Lord. Jesus shows up and says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, I am the Lord. I'm the greatest prophet. He's a true priest. All the Old Testament priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before making sacrifices for the, sin of the uh, sins of the people. But Jesus, the sinless one, didn't have to do that. And thus he was able to offer himself as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. He's the true king. Throughout the Bible, you see kings come and go. Jesus is the king of kings whose kingdom will never end. He's the true tabernacle, temple, shepherd, bread, vine, light. We could just keep going and going and going. Some of you have heard that before, but honestly, does it ever really get old? And then there's doctrine. You can't get away from Jesus no matter how hard you try. Every single pillar of Christian doctrine, every theological concept you could possibly come up with points back to him. You can't study the doctrine of creation apart from Jesus because he created everything. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1 tells us. You can't study the doctrine of man apart from Jesus because you're made in his image and you're being conformed to his image if you're a Christian. You can't study the doctrine of angelic beings because they minister to him and sing of his glory, Hebrews 1 tells us. You can't study the doctrine of demonic beings apart from Jesus because he's the victory over the powers of evil. You can't study the doctrine of salvation apart from Jesus because there is no salvation apart from him. Peter tells us that on a couple of occasions already in the book of Acts. You can't study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus because Paul tells us the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. You can't study the doctrine of the church apart from Jesus because there's no body without the head who is Christ. And you can't study the doctrine of the end times without Jesus because it's him who will return and make everything sad untrue. He's everywhere. And then there are all the human struggles and longings that can't seem to escape Jesus either. If you've been a part of the inaugural foundations course that we've been doing for the last few weeks, you know what I'm talking about, as do those of you who haven't been a part of that course but are simply growing in gospel fluency with us as a church, that, that Jesus speaks to our identity issues as he offers us a better identity than any person or thing that we look to for meaning and significance in life. He speaks to our idolatry issues as he proves to be the only object of worship who will truly never fail us that he has something to offer to those dealing with guilt, shame, rejection, loneliness, inadequacy, failure, and on and on and on we could go, right? There's, there's a way in every single conversation to point to Jesus. He's the inescapable hero of the greater inescapable story that we're caught up in. I've said it before on a couple of different occasions. It's why when you watch films, listen to, to songs, that you hear these threads of brokenness and redemption and hope and identity weaved in because uh, film screenwriters and, and uh, songwriters can't escape the bigger story that they're a part of. We can't get away from it no matter how, how hard we try. There's a way in every conversation to point to Jesus because he's the great hero of the great story that we're caught up in that we just can't escape. Hey, isn't he glorious? 
Philip was probably just as giddy as as the man he shared the gospel with to talk about how Isaiah 53 points to Jesus, to show him, in fact, that everything, everything points to Jesus. Because Philip had been so radically changed by Jesus that he saw Jesus in everything. That's one of my prayers for every one of us. If you're not a Christian, as I say just about every week, my hope is that you see Jesus as beautiful and supremely valuable, even in the last few minutes as we've talked about how he's tattooed across the pages of Scripture, that he's a part of the, the, the greater story that you're caught up in that you can't get away from, that just like the Ethiopian eunuch, that you would turn to him and you would leave this place rejoicing, that you would say, like, is there a kiddie pool we can blow up? Because I'd like to be baptized as a first step of obedience. And if, if you're thinking, man, I'm not there yet, but, but I'd be interested to have a conversation kind of like the one I see here in Acts chapter 8. If that's you, man, I would love to meet up with you and talk about how your story is in desperate need of Jesus. That's a cup of coffee. That's a lunch I'm happy to have with you. And if you are a Christian, my prayer is that, that you and I, as a, as a collective family, that we grow more and more in a deeper understanding of of how everything points to Jesus, including all of Scripture. Because after all, looking at Acts chapter 8, you, you never know when the Spirit of God might come calling. You, you never know when your next evangelistic chariot awaits you. That as we grow in our understanding of how everything points to, to Jesus, submitting ourselves all the while to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, whom we're desperate for to lead us and guide us, that God is happy to flex the muscles of his grace and mercy, just like he does here in Acts chapter eight. And you and I, we get to be part of that. That's crazy. Acts 29, baby, that's who we are. We're the continuation of this story that we see right here in Acts chapter eight. What an incredible honor and privilege to be a, a tool in the hands of this great rescuer of souls, pointing people to the, the beautiful and supremely valuable son of God, just like Philip, watching God accomplish, accomplish his great plan of salvation for sinners, and we get to participate.